because so many of these rituals that we now have that have been commercialized and bastardized and um, removed from all their original content have really beautiful, deep pagan roots, most of them, if not all of them. And uh, Halloween, uh, according to various sources, uh, has its origins in the ancient Celtic festival known as, it's spelt Samhain, but I think it's pronounced Soan, which is derived from Old Irish and means summer's end. A similar festival was held by the ancient Britons. The festival of Samhain celebrates the end of the lighter half of the year and beginning of the darker half, and is sometimes regarded as the Celtic New Year. The celebration has some elements of a festival of the dead. The ancient Celts believed that the border between this world and the other world became thin around this time, allowing spirits both harmful and harmless to pass through. The family's ancestors were honored and invited home while harmful spirits were warded off. It is believed that the need to ward off harmful spirits led to the wearing of costumes and masks. Hence, I brought my little costume. But being shy, I'm just putting it on for a couple of minutes. This is my wizard crystal ball here. I will look into your fortunes. I see much meditation practice happening here. Um, anyhow, the purpose is to disguise yourself as a spirit and thus be avoided, uh, have, avoid getting harmed by the, the evil spirits. So they'd probably just laugh if they saw this, which is a probably good thing to do to evil spirits. So on October 31st, um, uh, Samhain was celebrated and it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to the earth. In addition to causing trouble and damaging crops, Celts thought the presence of otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids or the Celtic priests to make predictions about the future. For a people entirely dependent on the volatile natural world, these prophecies were an important source of comfort and direction during the long winter nights. When the celebration was over, they relit their hearth fires, which they had extinguished earlier that evening from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter. I may have some reference to uh, the lanterns that we, that we liked, you know, the lanterns you put outside your house, I think that has some relationship to those. Uh, okay, so I can't give the Dharma talk with this, I'm afraid. Thank you. <laughs> I'll put it here. <laughs> it's uh, the sorting hat. Mm, Gryffindor, no, I think it's uh, not Slytherin. <laughs> That's a Harry Potter reference for those of you who don't. No, I could be very sacrilegious and put it on Kanye's head, but I would get told off. So, anyhow, I'll be very good. <laughs> so, in continuing on the theme, I am wanting to play a song. I love to play music when I can, when it fits in with the theme of the talk. So, what I want to talk about is the veil, seeing, um, so this is a very common uh, spiritual theme of seeing through the veils. And in particular, um, seeing into the mystery. So this, this, time, this, time, this time of year, the darkness, the veils, for me, points to, a, to uh, looking into the mystery. Right? So that when we see through the veil, the veil is that which is veiled, which is obscured, which is mysterious. It's unknown, right? It's uncertain. We don't know what's behind the veil, which is why we always want to take a peek, which is why we meditate, which is why we practice, to, to, see, to see through the ways that we don't see clearly. So um, I want to play um, a song that many of you will know and love uh, by Van Morrison called Into the Mystic. Mm. 
which speaks to this theme. Sometimes poetry and song says it better than any other ones. And you're free, free to get up and dance, move, enjoy yourself. than the sun And the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic Hearts now hear the sailors cry Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit fly into the mystic And where that foghorn blows I will be coming home mm. And when the foghorn blows I want to hear it (laughs) 
So that's a bit of a hard act to follow. (laughs) (laughs) So as I would mention during the meditation, uh, to um, it's a little bit, bit of an impossible task to see the veils with which we're looking through, because the veils that we look through are mostly unconscious and invisible, which is why they're veils, which is why we don't see them. And as we wake up, we begin to see, we bring the conscious, unconscious into consciousness, and we begin to see the veils of the obscurations, the biases, the projections, the assumptions, all of different ways that we think we see clearly, but don't so well. And when we don't see clearly, what happens? We suffer. But if you ask anybody in the street, do you see clearly? They're going to say, yeah, pretty good. You know, if I don't, I've got my glasses and thank you very much. Do you see reality as it is? Yeah, pretty much. That's a red car over there and that's a person over there. Pretty good. This is a table. Yeah. So, so what does it mean to, to see through the veils? Spiritual teachings for millennia have said that we don't see clearly. We, 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 our, our perception, our understanding is veiled. Yeah, we, look through a, we look through certain lenses of our conditioning. Yeah. So we, we perceive the world according to uh, our upbringing, Class, race, culture, gender, age, which of course are also pretty invisible to us because we've grown up with them for so long. So in diversity trainings, there's a lot of teaching around the various lenses we look through. So as a white man of privilege, I don't see most of the time that I'm a white man with privilege. It's just how I know the world to be. Right? But from a different point of view, from someone who doesn't have those privileges, the world is perceived very differently. And that could be the same with any other, any other aspects of our experience. So hopefully meditation, um, part of what meditation does is it, it is, it hopefully is pulls the rug out a little bit from underneath us. So it actually makes things unsettled and uncertain. And we move into more, we move from a realm of egoic certainty, well, this is me and this is how it is, to, well, maybe that's not quite how it is. My partner keeps saying, that's not how it is. They have a different view than me, or my kids have a different view than me, or my colleagues have a different view than me. Maybe I'm not seeing reality as it is. Which reality is true? You know, we tend people looking at a particular situation. This is chronicled sociologically, psychologically, looking at a, a crime event. Right? So we see through very different lenses. There's a lovely line from Bankai, a Zen master. He said, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. You know, when you're having those little arguments of meditation, but I, I'm going to say that, and when they say that, I'm going to say that, and then I'm, you know, I prove that I'm right. We're always trying to prove to somebody that we're right, that we, you know, our point of view is valid. Don't, what's, if, you don't, if you step out from siding with yourself. So, so moving from 
from certainty to uncertainty. So there's a you know, quality of don't know mind that uh, Sangsanim, a great Zen teacher, used to speak of. Don't know mind, don't know. Where we, where we, where we hold lightly this sense of knowing what's really true or knowing what something actually is. Because can we really know what anything is? You know, we can know it conceptually. Right? If I say the moon, you all know what the moon is. It's a concept, it's round, it's white, it's up in the sky. Right? But can we really know what the moon is? I mean, what we see of the moon is a reflection of light from the sun. That's mostly what we know of the moon. Is that the moon? Do we really know the moon? Do we, have, do we know our image or our perception of the moon? So my experience of shifting from certainty to uncertainty, which is very unsettling for the ego, because the ego likes to know what's happening, likes the familiar. Anybody like uncertainty here? <laughs> He's not sure. <laughs> He's uncertain about that. <laughs> um, right? No, it's, it's unsettling. Right? We like solid ground. Yeah, We don't like... Our houses built on sand in earthquakes. No, we like them built into bedrock. Right? There's a lot of shifting ground recently yeah, in, in the earth, literally, metaphorically. And that's very unsettling. Right? We try to build our lives on the known and the familiar, which is fine, which is human. But it's also a little rigid, it's a little boxed, it's a little deadening in some ways. It's not so alive. So, to ask yourself, what's it like to hang out in the unknown, in the uncertain? What's it like not to know? Anything. And someone says, who are you? You know, you could say a lot of different things, right? I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm English, American, whatever. Or you could say, I have no idea. Because what I tell you this morning, getting out of bed, is different than what I tell you now when I'm at Spirit Rock, and what I tell you tomorrow when I'm driving at work, and the next day when I'm picking up the kids, and the next day when I'm swimming at Stinson Beach. Who am I? I don't know. I'm this myriad-changing process of life, unrepeatable matrix of conditions. So what's better to, to, to have a sense of mystery with yourself, and, and to not box yourself and limit yourself by these labels you put on yourself? Or is it better to, to have a more free, fluid view of like, hmm, I don't know. It keeps changing, depending on my reference point, depending on my mood, depending on what I had to eat, depending on what environment I'm in. Don't know mind. This is from Byron Katie, who has some interesting things to say about reality. She says, when people believe their thoughts, people divide reality into opposites. They think there are only certain things are beautiful, but to a clear mind, everything in the world is beautiful in its own way. Only by believing your thoughts can you make the unreal real. If you don't separate reality into categories by naming it and believing that your names are real, how can you reject anything or believe that one thing is of less value than the other? 
The mind's job is to pr prove that what it thinks is true, and it does this by judging and comparing this to that. So, you know, and there's a place for that. There's a place for judging and understanding what's true, and that's how we move through the world. You know, we make a distinction between a bus and a truck, so we catch the bus to work and not the truck to work. You know, there's some, there's some great value with the mind and its functioning and carving up reality, this and that, and right and wrong, and um, and yet the the trick is to hold it lightly, right? Those things, those labels are just labels, they're concepts, they're not really the actual experience. The finger pointing to the moon, the moon is a concept. And poets and mystics have sat with the moon for decades in their lives, looking at the moon and never knowing the moon. Someone just gave me this beautiful book called, um, poetry book, Chinese Poets, um, the clouds should know me by now. <laughs> Completely beautiful thing. The clouds should know me. It's just, just it's a whole shift of reference point. You know, it's these mystics who hang up in the mountains and the caves up in China, wherever they were. Poets and writers, hermits, Taoist sages. The clouds should know me by now because they sat there for so long. Right? Beautiful. Not, I should know the clouds, I should know nimbulus strata, or whatever they're called, you know, all the names of the cumulus nimbus, or I don't know. Maybe that, that sounds like a, something from Harry Potter too. Right? That, was a, that was one of the, whatever. <laughs> that was one of the broomsticks, the nimbus. <laughs> I guess I got Harry Potter because I'm seeing all these wizards and people in cloaks. Sorry for the Harry Potter references. The Nimbus 2000, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> so the third Zen patriarch uh, said, uh, wrote, uh, if you wish to see the truth, then cease to cherish your opinions. Cease to cherish your views. If you wish to see the truth, then we have to first see, look at all the views and opinions and ideas that we think the truth is, right? that we think the world is. Cease to cherish means not to hold on to them so tightly as if they're ultimately real. I go, maybe I don't know, maybe, maybe this view is, is leading in the right direction, but it's not the whole truth. So this is a poem. I don't have the author of the poem because uh, I don't have the full poem, actually, but that's okay, because the first part is really good. And it's called Monet, the, the painter, Monet, the French painter, Monet. Monet refuses the operation. Doctor, you say that there are no... And this is in, in, as if he was talking. <clears throat> Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age, an affliction... I tell you, it has taken all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels. To soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see. To learn that the line I call the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before I could see, ruined cathedral is built of parallel shafts of light. 
sorry, parallel shafts of sun. And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you the Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? What can I say to convince you the Houses of Parliament, which you drew, I think, 60 paintings of the Houses of Parliament, or maybe more, dissolve night after night to become the fluid dreams of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water. So that poem says it all to me, the, you know, the perception, this beautiful, refined, artistic, poetic perception of the world is one way of seeing the, re- of the world, one way of seeing reality. Right? And then conventional reality says, no, there's form is like this, it's separate, it's discrete, there's objects and they don't have any relationship to each other. That's the mind's perspective, conventional perspective. Monet is saying, no, he's taking the mystical perspective where light and color and form and shape and dimension, they're fluid, they interrelate, they have a dynamism, they're alive, they're not fixed, and we see, we all see in different ways. So next time you're having a point of view about something in a meeting, in a conference, about somebody, in a relationship, about the world, about Occupy Wall Street, or the Tea Party, or both. Notice, notice, notice you're cherishing your opinions, as, as the Thurzend Patriarch said, how you cherish your view as the right one, of course, because it's mine. To, to see if there's a way to hold it lightly, to say, I don't know. I don't know what I think about people occupying Oakland. I don't know if it's good or bad, or beautiful or scary, or maybe we, you know, we have such a short-range, time-limited view of things that we, you know, just like we can't, you know, we, we, we see in the bounds of our conditioning, we see in the bounds of the time that we were brought up in. Five centuries ago, the earth was flat. That was what that determined our views. Now we have a different view, whatever that view is. So there was this great study uh, done on a college campus uh, studying compassion. And it, to me, it highlights uh, uh, how, a good example of how we relate to the world depending on the conditions that were, were governing us in the moment. So um, there was there had 40 students divided into two groups. And uh, these, these students, college students, were in a lecture. And they were told that at the end of the lecture, one, the first group was told um, they had uh, only five minutes or less to get to the next lecture. And it was extremely important to everything that they were doing at college to get to that lecture on time. 
that they would be not allowed into the class, it would be a huge deal if they didn't get there, like that this was like a very important thing they had to do as soon as class was dismissed. So uh, they would let them, and they, somehow they would let them out one by one to do that, I don't know how that worked, but anyhow. And um, uh, as each person went out, uh, uh, um, somebody, this was staged, somebody would trip over and fall like flat on their face in front of them. And the students who were told, you know, don't stop for anything, just get to this class on time, it's really important, more important than anything, not one out of the 20 students stopped to help the person. Because they were operating with a certain view that this, that nothing else mattered except this thing, right? Forget everybody else. And then the 20 other students who were told, they weren't told that. I'm not sure what they were told, but they weren't told to rush or, you know, vast majority, if not all of them, stopped to help the person. Because they were operating from a different paradigm in that moment, a very small paradigm, very minor, you could say. So that's, you know, we have, we could, we could, we have our own paradigms multiplied by 5,000, you know, our agendas and our views and our goals and our missions and our, you know. So I think it's fascinating, that study, that not one student stopped. That this idea, this concept was, overrode the human value of compassion. Lost my clock. I should look into my crystal ball. (laughs) It's eight (laughs) forty (laughs) one. It's eight forty two, actually. Right on, it's close. So, so. How would it be to look at the world if we could peek through the veil as the mystics and the poets and the writers uh, often do and reveal a world that's more beautiful and more, and, and again, it could also be you know, astrophysicists and molecular biologists at this point who also penetrate reality and open it up to see these amazing universes that we don't see with our ordinary eyes, what would it be like to, to look at the world through the veil and to see the mystery more alive or more potent or more real? Which we do at times. We, 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 at times in meditation or when we're just incredibly present and we look at somebody or we look at a bird or a tree or the light uh, we hear the coyotes howling in a cool autumnal night, and we sense something mysterious, something beautiful, something timeless, something vast, something sacred. Yeah. It's maybe what propelled you to on your on your on your search on your journey. Yeah, you tasted something. Maybe you your parents took you to a cathedral in Europe when you were six, and you tasted something holy in the space. You didn't know what it was, this vast cathedral, stone cold, 
but you know, that's the light coming through the stained glass or the monks chanting or you know, we all have some access to the sacred in different ways, the mystery, you might put it. It's what makes this whole thing have meaning in some ways. And much of spiritual practice is to allow us to have more access to that depth, to that mystery, to that sacred point of view or understanding. And a lot of the mystics who have live in that are considered crazy because and they think we're crazy. <laughs> the, Buddha did, the Buddha was aghast at how much ignorance there was. See how much ignorance there was to see how we create our own suffering, because we don't see clearly. So, you know, the world, this beautiful world that we live in, these amazing bodies that we inhabit, are wonderful. The body is the doorway to... The body and the mind is the doorway to the mystery. It's all we have. This is the portal right here. Right? The senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, awareness. Right? So a friend of mine was at a spiritual group yesterday, and uh, there was an old man uh, uh, in the group who was in his 80s, um, I think that's old, I don't know, you know, it might be young for some people, but you know, older man, I should say, and um, 80 is the new 50, right, so, you know, um, and he said, you know, I'm really aware of death, I'm really, it's a, it's a very real reflection, you know, it's close, and how close, it's clo- it feels closer, and, and so it, you know, it helps me wake up, it helps me see how amazing this life is. And he said, just to hear. And he gave this, he gave this, he gave this sort of soliloquy, like, it sounded like a Buddhist teaching, one of the Buddhist teachings, he said, just to hear, and to see, and to taste, and to touch, to sense, to breathe, that is amazing. It's a mystery. It's a wonder that we can do that, right? It, it's really a wonder. I, I, I never cease to wonder. I was at a dinner party recently, and I forget uh, why it came up, but uh, I asked people uh, uh, something like, what, what, what amazes you? And we went round and talked about what, what amazed us about being in this, in this life. And for me, it's about... Um, well, the whole thing's amazing. The whole thing's myster- mysterious. As I think one of the great philosophers, I think it was Heidegger or Wittgenstein, one of those guys I don't understand generally, but they said this line, which I do understand, they said, it's amazing, at the end of um, one of the Opus Maguses, they said, it is amazing there is something rather than nothing. It is amazing in this vast universe that we have no idea of the vastness of it is. Trillions of billions of galaxies with the trillions and billions of stars and trillions and billions trillions of planets. That this amazing there was, you know, most of it's space, most of it's dark matter, whatever that is, 99%. It's amazing out of that dark matter, that 99%, fortunately, the 1%, <laughs> there is something. <laughs> 
even though this is all 99% space somehow, but it's still something. Right? This is something. And it's, look at this, it's beautiful, it's a crystal. Some kind of crystal. It's amazing. It's amazing that someone dug it up. It's amazing that someone could shine it. It's amazing that we can see it. It's amazing we can touch it. It's cold. It's beautiful. It's always cold. And you hear a sound. It's a mystery. So sometimes when we hear about mystery, we think, oh, it's something really, you know, profound and esoteric, and I'm going to get there in 45 years of meditation practice, I might get a glimpse. That might be true. But it's also like right here, as teachers, awakened beings tell us all the time, it's right here. if If we pay attention, the fact that things grow, whatever growth is, right? You know, all this the lovely rain that we had a month ago, and now look, it's the, the ground's carpeted in grass. Like, what a mystery. Like this, life knows to seek light. And it knows to be green. <laughs> and it knows to be beautiful. Or it just is beautiful. You know, someone I was having another conversation. I, I, this is, I have a lot of these conversations. <laughs> so anyhow, so the dinner party, so I, I asked people, you know, what's, what's, what's amazing to you? What's your favorite thing about being in this life? And people said various things. And I said, what's amazing to me is just, is, is not, there's, not just that there's something, but that we, we can be aware of it. That's amazing. Like this, this facility of awareness, right? you walk outside, and hopefully, if you're aware, you'll feel the beautiful night air. You'll feel the coolness on your skin. You'll smell. There's more ozone in the air in, in the autumn, so it has a different smell. And you'll see the stars and the, the space. And right? the mystery is all around, all the time. Right? Our more human, mechanical you know, lives, our repetitive lives, can tend to take the mystery out of things. Right? You're sitting in your cubicle, and you're looking at your screen, and your Blackberry, and you're driving your car, and you know, contented, and you watch TV, and you drink a little alcohol, and, right? and it tends to just numb, and deaden, and soften, and flatten everything, so it's kind of blah. Right? So you don't cause a revolution, because that would be problematic. Better to have a numb workforce than a you know a live one. That was a little socialist, but anyhow. <laughs> um, I've been watching too many Occupy Wall Street demonstrations. Honestly. <laughs> anyhow, um, so you know, so so in our lives, in our habitual, repetitive lives, it's easy to go on autopilot, to go to sleep. And, and, and many of the circumstances in our lives don't, don't help that. I think looking at a screen can tend to create a lot of numbness and flatness. You know, the, you know Richard Lou's book, um, Lost, Last Child in the Woods, beautiful book about what he termed nature deficit disorder, which, was, which is what's happening to, our, to a generation of children who are who are not getting outside to play because of access, because of people's fear about letting children out in, the, in nature, and because of the tech, growth of technology, 
they're not having access to nature, which is for probably for most people, it's where people access the sacred, access, access mystery, access wonder, right? From kids to, you know, cent centenarians. Centenarians, thank you. Very helpful at the front here. <laughs> um, yeah, so. So it behooves us to, to ask, well, what brings me alive? What, what wakes me up from you know, not looking at my screen, not checking my email, not seeing the world through the computer? You know? The range of colors, you know, the range of greens that are found in nature cannot be replicated on a screen. You know, the diversity and the complexity that's so wonderful for, for, for learning which is why it's so wonderful for kids to get out and play in, in nature because there's so much complexity and, and, and there's so much room for imagination and play and creativity. Um, it's, just, it's just not so there in a, in, a, in a more monochromatic human world. So, um, as many of you know, I'm a big nature lover and I'm, I'm, I'm a, if I'm an evangelist of anything, it's of nature. <laughs> You know, if I want to convert people, it's to it's to basically getting outside. You know, to just to just anywhere. I mean, just just you know, on your front doorstep, you know, in your yard, in your deck, in the parks. Go to the parks before they're closed. I just I just read the list of the top ten parks around here that that are threatened of closure, including Samuel P. Taylor down the road, which is a very beloved park. It's on the threatened list. So if you care about those parks, you can. Um, go online and, and support the uh, movement to have them not be closed. So, but you know, to get outside and to, you know, that's, it's so easy to feel wonder and, and mystery there. You know, and then just to look at our bodies, you know, the body is, is, is an amazing thing. You know, it's just, it, it just is, just, you know, we're all unique, these unique prints of tongues and fingers and eyes and all kinds of odd, unique things about us. <laughs> yeah. And the way the body takes care of itself, the way the body heals itself. I, I, I'm always, I love getting, I don't love getting cuts, but I kind of love watching it body heal. It's, it's just like, I don't do anything. It just does it by itself. It creates a scab and then it, you don't even notice it after a few months. It's gone. Like, what is that? And it's just, there's no manual. It's just doing its thing. You, know, you cut your hair and it grows back. You know? who, who would have thought? Mostly. You know, not always. <laughs> Each person has a unique tongue print. I don't know how they worked that one out, but... Be a bit messy at you know passport immigration. <laughs> mm, the kids would like it. Mm. <laughs> so um, yeah, I carry around these factoids about the body, which I am always in awe of. Um, uh, in the next sentence, fifty thousand cells in your body are going to die. It's very tragic. <laughs> but the next sentence, another 50,000 will be created. Just like that. You know, put no, no need for a magic hat. Just boom, the body just creates 50,000 cells right there. Just in that last 10 seconds, boom. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> 
and we have a hundred trillion cells, which is, you know, I think they were trying to map the amount of cells in the body to the amount of galaxies or, or suns or something. You know. I think there turns out to be more suns than cells, but who knows? I oh, know the, the amount of neurons, the amount of neurons in the brain are something exponential to the hundred trillion cells that we have. I mean, it's amazing. And we just kind of show up and it does its thing. You know, we just kind of you know, <coughs> pop out and there we are. And the heart's beating, the lungs are breathing, and bones grow and we can see and hear. Yeah. You know, it's easy to take it for granted. Right? When we, that's why when we go on autopilot, we go to sleep. And then we stop seeing what an amazing mystery we live in. Yeah. We start thinking about, well, I don't have enough money, and if only I had a new you know, computer, and a new iPhone S, or whatever, 4G, something or other. <laughs> then I'd be happier, right? Because that's way more exciting than the fact that I can see. Like, wow. <laughs> or I can hear birdsong and coyotes and traffic and Mozart. And I was listening to this great, amazing violinist called Gilles, Gilles Apape. Any, any, any you ever heard of this person? Gilles Apape. Exquisite Algerian, French-Algerian violinist. Check him out on YouTube. Completely gorgeous. Just, it's just amazing. It's just a mystery that the, the, the music's created. Bach and Mozart and you know, and Def Leppard and whoever it is you're into, you know. Maybe not Def Leppard, but you know. So I think, you know, of all the things, uh, I think for myself and, and uh, many mystics would say that, that awareness itself is one of the most uh, mystical, quizzical, uh, wild things because it's invisible, but it's available, it's everywhere, but doesn't have a location or color or place, size. How big is awareness? Where is it? (laughs) But it somehow functions and allows us to know everything. Kind of wild. Look look at awareness right now. Look at this thing that is knowing. Can you do that? Is it possible? Can you turn awareness back on itself? This is from the Sagadatta, great Indian mystics of the last century. He said, I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of what of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. <coughs> this capacity to shift the focal point of consciousness, which, which is really what we do when we're, I mean, this is slightly different, but similar, it's what we do when we're feeling empathy. 
when we're feeling compassion. We're shifting the focal point of a self-referential attention to the experience of another. It's a very beautiful thing that we can do that. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He puts it this way. When we see the moon, the moon is in us. It becomes, and I can't read this, becomes, I am. When we see the moon, the moon is in us because it is inside our perception. When we smile at a friend, the friend is also us because she or he is inside our perception. Our consciousness is within the object. The idea that our consciousness is outside the flower has to be removed or examined. It's just another way of putting it. When we see something, when, when something is in our awareness, we're no longer separate from it, even though we might think, well, I'm here and you're over there. Right? Are we actually that separate if awareness is all-encompassing? Right? So these things are, these pointers to the mystery or to, to not knowing, they're not to be picked up by the mind and go, well, that's right and that's wrong. No, it's to, it's, to, it's to look at it like, oh, well, let me take a look. Take that hand saying, when we see the moon, the moon is in me because it's inside my Well, what does he mean by that? Moon's the moon's up there. What's he talking about? I'm, I'm here. This. <laughs> la la. <laughs> but that's for us one point of view, right? That's a, that's just a rational, rational, deductive point of view. Clearly. The moon is up there, somewhere in the sky, and I'm here. From another perspective, as we see that it's all in awareness, then, well, is it so separate? I don't know. What's it like when we don't see it so separate? It changes the nature of the experience. We don't feel so isolated. We don't feel so separate. Rumi puts it like this, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas and language and even the phrase each other do not make sense. Ideas and language and even the phrase each other does not make sense. So just notice what's happening as you're listening to this. What's the mind doing? It's like, "Mm, I agree with that, don't agree with this. Mm, Open, not so open. And just pointing different things, different ways. I think what I'm most interested in, and, and the, these teachings of mindfulness teach us to look what, at what's right here. Right? Not in some future place, not in some retreat, some monastery, some mystical experience. It's like, what's right here? You know? Being around children is a beautiful thing to see the mystery, right? Just the way they grow, the way they learn. I was watching that YouTube video last night of the six-year-old pianist who plays like Mozart. It's really fun if you you haven't found something fun to do on on YouTube when you're at work sometime. Um, Just Google six-year-old Mozart. It's just this, you know, she, she she started playing the piano at two. Composing and you know, like Mozart did, except his her parents were a little 
kinder, I think. Less, <laughs> less, you know, you know, dread driving. But, um, you know, a child playing Mozart at two, like, come on, like, it's mysterious. I can't play Mozart at whatever age I am. So, um, so maybe you can have this as a reflection as you go through your day, as you go through your week. Um, does your life offer itself the moments, the, or the, the quiet, you know, sometimes, it, sometimes accessing this level of perception requires some supportive conditions like being quiet a little bit, being still a little bit, being open, not rushing, every six second of the day, right? not thinking every second of the day. It requires a little, sometimes we just, something kind of like, you know, just wakes us up, you know. But sometimes, it, you know, when we're quiet and more sensitive, then we have, we're more likely to be touched. Right? Billy Collins, a wonderful poet, talks about how poets spend most of their time sitting by the window. They're just waiting, waiting like a canvas to be touched, right? Mm-hmm. They're not busy like doing emails. That's not where the poetic impulse comes from. Right? <laughs> no, it's being quiet, being sensitive, sitting out in the garden chair and just listening. Just between at some point something comes. We're innately creative beings. If we give ourselves the right conditions, just like flowers, we need the right conditions. And your meditation is a supportive practice for this kind of receptivity, right? A phrase, enlightenment is an accident, meditation makes you more accident prone. So the mystical is an accident, in a way. You can't plan 910 appointment with the mystic. (laughs) No, forget it. That's not how it happens. But if you lie outside on the beach at Stinson Beach at 10 o'clock and you're looking up at the stars for an hour, something might happen, maybe, you know, in your backyard. Or... So, you know, it helps to give supportive conditions. This is from Kabir, puts it this way. He said, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. This is the, he's speaking to the seeker, the one who's looking for, you know, God, the sacred somewhere. Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues or cathedrals, not in masses, nor kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck. It's yoga. Not in eating nothing. Not in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me what is the mystical? He is the breath inside the breath. He is the breath inside the breath. You will not find me 
with legs winding around your own neck. <laughs> I always like that because I can never do those poses. <laughs> I bet most of you find those challenging too. <laughs> I can get my arm around my neck. So I think I'll close with um, uh, that um, just say a little about the relationship between love and the mystery, because they're very related. Love is very mysterious, in case you hadn't figured that out. <laughs> a romantic love is very mysterious, but any form of love, you know, it, it's again, it's one of those things that we can't, we can't will it. Right? We can cultivate it, we can grow it, we can you know, develop it, but we can't will it in a certain way. It arises spontaneously for many things, people, nature, ourselves, hopefully. And when we're more connected to what I'm calling the sacred or the mystery, Vastness, openness, emptiness, silence, whatever you call it, many different names, God, some people call it. Then often what arises, if not almost always out of that, is love. Is some form of heart opening, warmth, connection, desire to take care of, cherish. And that's a beautiful thing, and it's a mysterious thing. You know, what is the relationship between opening and love? What is it that when we touch the vastness in the sky or in the blade of grass, what is it, how is it that that evokes love? Who knows, but it does, mostly. Right? It doesn't always evoke, it may evoke something else, curiosity or wonder, fear sometimes. But mostly it's a, it's a warm, heart-opening, response. And of course that love leads us to be more curious, to know that more deeply, more intimately. What is that? Who are you? Who is this person I've woken up in the same bed for the last 23 years? Who are you? I don't know. If, I, if I'm really true, I don't really know. I know the stories, I know the body, I know the face, I know... Do I really know who you are in your essence? I can barely know who I am in my essence. How could I deign to ever say I know who you are? Right? It could be the greatest gift we give to each other. I don't know you, but I'm curious. I'm curious to open. I'm curious to be, to know you, to feel you, to sense you. So I'll close with this uh, passage from Thomas Merton, beautiful mystic, Christian mystic. 
He says, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine becomes incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. So may we all see each other in moments like we're shining like the sun. So thank you, everybody. It was very um, precious to be here on Samhain. This, may the veils continue to remain thin and may you see into the mystery. So have a lovely evening. I did want to read, uh, there was one announcement that I did want to speak to. I can just hold your attention for one second. So um, I have an announcement about Occupy Oakland is doing an outreach to local religious and spiritual communities um, that there is a general strike happening in Oakland in school and workplaces on Wednesday, November 2nd. There's daily meditations happening at 12 noon at Occupy Oakland site. An interfaith healing tent is being created and needs volunteers uh, in conflict resolution and bodywork and etc., um, and uh, there's an email here if anybody wants to find out the email I'll leave this note here huh? that is Wednesday November 2nd so um, enjoy the mystery be safe, be well, be happy be free and these talks are available on Dharma Seed I forgot to mention that